Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Previously. On the paranoid strain. I fucking heard it go down. I heard every story collapse. So you don't necessarily think it was a conspiracy where the government was plotting 9-11. You just think their response no, no, was so dramatic. No, I think it was both. But why weren't there more attacks? Why didn't the attacks continue? Why, 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 why? Like there's all this stack up of why. Sure. And then in the in the the wake of all this, there's all the power that was seized. So let's take on the biggest false flag conspiracy theory of all time. Newsflash, jet fuel can weaken steel, and Bush didn't do 9-11. And we're going to prove it on the paranoid strain. Check in your rule book. But you won't find anything in there that says a dog can't play. He's right! Ain't no rules that the dog can't play basketball! Uh, wait, you're telling me this mystery man of yours? Not only have you never met him in person... But he told you his name is Scared Priest? No, it's Fearful Jesuit. I know, I know, but I, I got a good feeling about this one. Uh, check please. This summer, the only conspiracy that's out to get you is love. Oh, no, you didn't. Wait, if Fearful Jesuit wasn't the man in the mask, then whose severed head is this? Fearful Jesuit isn't locked up in here with you. You're locked up in here with Fearful Jesuit. Cut the red wire. Which red wire? The red wire. They're all red wires. Mr. Jesuit, so glad you've joined us. I hope you're enjoying our hospitality. <laughs> What's that fearful? What's that boy? What did a chemtrail? What into the well? A chemtrail into the well? Where'd you? I don't. That doesn't make any. All right, boy. I'll follow. I'll follow. What's that smell? No, you listen. They're all dead. No one is coming to save us. We are alone, outnumbered, supplies cut off. All we can do is face them head on. I'm going over that wall. Who's coming with me? You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Well, geez. I hope you can. Otherwise, doing this show seems kind of pointless. Welcome back. Today we're finishing up our 9-11 episodes with a bunch of stuff so crazy. Look, it's just fucking crazy, okay? So refill that jumbo popcorn bucket and adjust your 3D glasses. Our feature presentation today is The Paranoid Strain. Paranoid strain It messes with 
Welcome back to your home away from home, The Paranoid Strain. For those just joining us, we're the podcast that's devoted to making you feel better about being sane. We do so by explaining all of the insanity behind the conspiracy theories you've heard from your bartender, your hairdresser, and that homeschooled kid your parents asked you to stay away from. This is the second of two episodes we've devoted to the idea that the perpetrators, causes, and events behind the attacks on 9-11 were very different than those suggested by the mainstream government-approved account. Last episode, we reviewed the most believable among these theories, considered the evidence in their favor, and found it wanting. This time, though, we're not here to refute. We're here to revel, because we've crossed the Rubicon of sense. This episode doesn't cover a single allegation that passes even the most cursory sniff test. This time, it's exclusively ideas that range from the offensively stupid to the certifiably insane. But before we bathe ourselves in unreality, we ask that you briefly join us in a reminder of the real tragedy that these theories inevitably cheapen. In the summer of 2017, during the Great Paranoid Strain Road Tour across the United States, I had the chance to visit my old stomping ground in Brooklyn. And while I was in the area, I revisited the southern tip of Manhattan for the first time since 2001. What you're hearing in the background is audio I recorded at the 9-11 Museum. It's built in the space that was once inhabited by the World Trade Center's underground mall. Visiting this place, reliving that day, was one of the most wrenching experiences I've had in, well, in about 17 years, actually. From emergency radio dispatches, to confused TV coverage, to destroyed vehicles, twisted structural steel, debris from the attacks and collapses, the scope of the museum speaks to the incomprehensible size of the event, the pieces of the world that were forever transformed in its wake. It's frankly overwhelming. Sandy Ayala. There's a room there where the only audio is a never-ending roll call of the victims. Lisa L. Charitola. She always got a good position in her jobs because they felt that she was a go-getter. When she was a teenager, she would go to work in the savings bank. And after that, she went on to Outside, there are two enormous holes in the earth, square the precise dimensions of the spaces the buildings once occupied. Around the walls that rim each side, the names of those who died in the tower that once filled that space are carved in stone. From each interior wall, a river of water plunges endlessly into an unfillable well at the center. A never-ending loss. We expect to have plenty of laughs this episode. This is where we tackle absolutely the silliest ideas about these attacks. But even as we do so, you know, never forget. Okay, you're ready? I think I am. Now, 
Dear listeners, we have to leave the land of well-intended but perhaps ill-informed folks who have honest questions about the events of 9-11 they got last episode. Instead, we're about to enter the world that we love the most. Welcome to Crazy Town, y'all. Can I strain it messes with your brain? Can I strain it messes? Can I strain it messes with your brain? Can I strain it messes with your So first, a quick recap of our previous 9-11 episode, the one that came out before QAnon, and which we strongly recommend you listen to before tackling this one. In the wake of the September 11th attacks, many people, including our own beloved Willem UFO, had questions about the consensus narrative of what happened that day. This led to the rise of the 9-11 truther movement, which, between 2003 and 2006, was by far the most popular conspiracy theory in the U.S., in response to this state of affairs, a wide array of competent experts set out to conclusively answer these questions and definitively debunk the wilder accusations. This effort, combined with the political changes that reduced the power of the Bush administration after the 2006 elections, seems to have tamped down the truther flames to a smolder. Which brings us to the topics of this episode. In addition, I need to remind you of a few of our most important players, both truther and sensible. You may recall that there was a guy we covered last time, David Ray Griffin, who has been called the Dean of 9-11 Truthers. He's like a one-man truther publishing house and seems to learn nothing from the repeated debunkings his work has been subject to. Anyway, as soon as the Popular Mechanics team published their magnum opus debunking 9-11 myths, which systematically destroys all major truther claims via evidence and expert testimony, Griffin issued the super cleverly titled Debunking 9-11 Debunking. While the Popular Mechanics folks have the sense not to issue a response— Though if they did, we might be treated to the recursive title Debunking 9-11 Debunking Debunking. Author David Aronovich bats around Ray's nonsense like a kitten with a baby mouse in his excellent voodoo histories, which we also touched on last time. We'll get back to that rather one-sided intellectual duel in a second. Anyway, we bought and read through Griffin's book, or at least the portion that's actually devoted to responding to the experts as opposed to simply impugning their character and motives. Said effort starts with a smear against Hearst, the book's publisher, as well as the supposed connections that various authors and sources have to the government as nebulously defined by the author. Griffin clearly wants his readers to connect the broad, unrelated dots he's dropping into a vague picture they can use to convince themselves that no matter how much sense the resulting books makes, we can't trust it because everyone involved was totally in on it, man. Wake up, sheeple! There's also a great deal of, well, your experts say this, but our experts say this, which elides the fact that for the most part the experts, Griffin quotes, are not actually highly trained in the specific fields relevant to the investigation, or in the few cases where their degrees are relevant, he seems unperturbed by the fact that his experts are distant outliers to the scientific consensus that their peers have accepted. And sure, all of those peers could be wrong. Proving consensus is in error is how science advances, but overturning consensus requires the one making the claim to prove his or her case with an overwhelming preponderance of strong, contradictory evidence. Griffin's quoted experts never, ever meet that minimal threshold. For example, one of the most prominent conspiracist groups is Scholars for 9-11 Truth. S-9-11-T for short, which makes it sound like the least successful street gang in history. 
This group, formed in 2005 by a physics professor and a philosophy professor, the latter of whom was already a figure in JFK conspiracy circles, endeavors to preserve the veneer of scientific objectivity. However, as Aronovich notes, though they were ostensibly convened to research 9-11 related issues from a neutral point of view and, as they put it, let the chips fall where they may, they take the controlled demolition theory as ipso facto pre-proven. As a result, far from being allowed to fall unhindered, the chips had been nudged firmly, if not remotely controlled, into their final position. God damn, that's good snark. Nice work, Mr. Aronovich. In addition, whenever their questionable conclusions are opposed or discredited by scientists with more relevant experience and expertise, the S-911T crowd strikes back with ad hominem attacks, questioning the motives and character of these non-truther experts. Which leads us to ask just how expert are the members of this group with regard to the event they presume dispassionately to analyze. Again, because he's just so damn quotable, Mr. Aronovich. Out of 76 named scholars for truth, there were no Middle Eastern experts and only two engineers, one of whom thought the United States was plotting to bomb the planet Jupiter with antimatter weapons, while the other devoted himself to studying the mechanics of dentistry. Still, truthers have managed to smuggle their way into a wide variety of venues over the years, from Real Time with Bill Maher. You have good friends. Tell us what happened in Philly 7, That was not mine. Oh. Yeah, this is the problem with live television. I guess it gets around that if you're on live, then, then the nutcases, yeah, and you are a nutcase, Building 7. Yeah. <laughs> to city council meetings, to campaign rallies for this guy. The Iraqis, uh, you will find out who really knocked down the World Trade Center, because they have papers in there that are very secret. You may find it's the Saudis, okay? But you will find out, but it wasn't Iraq. So you say... My personal favorite is this throwdown between a truther and Noam Chomsky. We've all seen the other towers fall, but what about Building 7, Noam? Well, in fact, uh, you're right that there's a consensus among a minuscule number of architects and engineers, tiny number, there are a couple of them are perfectly serious. They are not doing what scientists and engineers do when they think they've discovered something. What you do... When you think you've discovered something, what you do is write articles in scientific journals, uh, give talks at the professional societies, uh, go to the civil engineering department at MIT or Florida or wherever you are, and present your results, uh, and uh, then proceed to try to convince the national academies, the professional society of physicists and civil engineers, the departments in the major universities convince them that you've discovered something. Now there happen to be a lot of people around who spent an hour on the internet and think they know a lot of physics, but it doesn't work like that. There's a reason why... Sure, he's the patron saint of left-wing radicals, but Chomsky is nonetheless a man of science who demands real evidence for sweeping conclusions. In re-examining and therefore keenly remembering the heyday of trutherism as the number one conspiracy among true believers, it occurred to us that while we are quite happy to maintain our anonymity and thereby avoid tedious online arguments with conspiracists, there are others who have dared to take on the truther mob under their own names. One of those thick-skinned journalists is Jeremy Stahl. 
who in 2011 published a fascinating, multi-part series on the rise and fall of trutherism on the 10th anniversary of the attacks, and he was kind enough to talk with us about the experience of researching and writing that series, the reaction that truthers had to his reporting, and his thoughts on the reasons why this delusion seems so hard to shake out of our collective unconscious. You did this really excellent multi-part story on the 10th anniversary of 9-11 for Slate magazine that was about the history and what was then the current state of the 9-11 truther movement. Um, could you tell me a little bit about what brought you to that story and why particularly you wanted to cover that for the anniversary? I guess what brought it to me was personal connections to people who were conspiracy minded and had come to me, you know, friends and, and people that I had known in my life who had, you know, tried to very vociferously argue on behalf of things that just seemed so not just absurd, but damaging and wrong and dangerous to me. And wanting to try to understand how these ideas could be mainstreamed in such a way that human beings who I knew and had friendships and associations with were convinced that they were real when on their face didn't seem to have much basis in reality. Overall, uh, before starting your research, what was your impression of the movement and did that impression change as you were doing your research? It was a long time ago, but I feel like I knew very little. I had a friend who was convinced of that the towers came down in a demolition and there were other arguments that it was orchestrated by the government. I need the words false flag, I think. I think that was one of the big things that I knew. But I was coming at it from a place of, of, of really ignorance because I had never really wanted to put myself into that world before. I was taking it really fresh, I feel like. Once you start to do the research and you start to see all of the rabbit holes and subgenres of a specific larger thematic conspiracy theory, you can see how this could be somebody's hobby, dumping their lives into this and, and becoming an obsessive quote unquote researcher. It, it just bothered me to see all of the logical fallacies and manufactured evidence. The way, that, the way that these things inevitably work, as you know, is that anytime one leg is knocked down, there's just a thousand more sprout up, a thousand more explanations. Even if you can scientifically and factually explain away any particular piece of evidence, they're just going to come up with a hundred more pieces of similarly falsifiable evidence. And it's it's slightly frustrating. I don't know if you've, you've gotten frustrated, but I remember being kind of irked. I definitely have gotten frustrated. For example, I was going to spend more time dealing with David Ray Griffin's response to the popular mechanics book, Debunking 9-11 Myths, which, of course, he cleverly titled Debunking 9-11 Debunking. But I started reading through it, and I realized that it just reads exactly like all of the other literature, which is, oh yeah, you believe this? Well, Hearst put that out, and they're connected to the government, and these guys have a relative who worked for the government, so why would you believe them? And my expert, who has irrelevant expertise on this topic, disagrees with their experts, and they didn't answer this tiny little aspect. Oh, God, you're making my head hurt and reminding me of things. I remember speaking with the popular mechanics authors, and then I remember speaking with David Ray Griffin, and I remember speaking, but I, most of all, I remember reading his books. I specifically, you, you saying that has jogged my memory and, and brought, back, brought me back to the moment where I was reading Debunking 9-11, Debunking, and just going through, it was almost as if every sentence was 
written in such a way as to make my head explode. Oh, you disproved that fact? Well, what about this, though? Exactly. And just everything you described in terms of the impugning of sources and ad hominem comments and not ever actually addressing an argument, uh, not even just arguments, just facts. And it's so hard not to get caught into the trap of wanting to rebut the rebuttal of the rebuttal and like feeling just like every urge to write down why everything ever written by this person is the worst thing ever. If you fall into that trap, then it's like they've won basically. And like I, I had good editors who kept me off that path. Fortunately, it was Dan Angber, I think, who came up with this, a colleague, a colleague and friend who came up with the line that it's like arguing about the size of a hobbit army or something like that. There's no way to do it that doesn't make you part of this absurd world. We've already seen how David Ray Griffin is uh, really a key figure in American 9-11 trutherism. But one of the things that I thought was fascinating about your piece was you kind of talked about how it was a handoff that started with some early European truthers and then jump the pond back over here and then also got all involved in the release of a Michael Moore movie that kind of brought the whole thing into the mainstream. Could you talk a little bit about that? It's it's hard to use the word intellectual roots, but if, if we're going to say that this thing had intellectual roots, you can look across the pond and, and see trying to come up with the theories themselves how that happened. And I'll, I'll read it from my piece, just w- what I wrote about this, which which was this, that uh, the 9-11 conspiracy theories got a hearing in Europe and among liberal intellectuals like Gore Vidal before they rose in popularity in, in America. French author Thierry Mason's 9-11, The Big Lie, which postulated that the Pentagon was not struck by a jetliner, but by a smaller military aircraft or a missile, was the number one best-selling book in France for six weeks in the spring of 2002. And then it goes on to talk about how Vidal had, had started writing about this a bit, dipping his toes into the water of trying to provide alternative explanations. And, you know, that makes sense, obviously, because they clearly turned against the military and geopolitical response of the global war on terror way before we did. And in my research, that's what I found to be the jumping off point and the starting point for a lot of people's broader skeptic skepticism of the explanation of 9-11, which was just that the response and the wars that were started because of it and how poorly they were handled and how we were misled into this war in Iraq over uh, weapons of mass destruction that didn't exist was what drove, I think, a lot of people to take these more extreme and kind of less based in reality views and that was happening. I, I feel like it's fair to say that that was happening sooner in Europe than it was in the U.S., where the political environment was, you know, supportive of these military ventures at the start. One of the things that was really useful to me in reading your piece is to throw myself back into that era during and just post the 2004 election. You know, you have Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 9-11 coming out, which makes some reasonable, some outrageous claims, but doesn't actually cover any truth or topics, but in a sense fanned the flames because people were so mad at the Bush administration and the Iraq war that you make the point that sort of the high tide of trutherism tracks with the high tide of Bush's radical unpopularity in his second term. That's absolutely, you know, true. And it's 
It's not like these theories ever entered mainstream popularity in an enormous way, but they were certainly part of popular culture. You had upwards of like 38% respondents at a high point in these polls saying that they believe some version of government responsibility for this, whether it was an idea that the government knew about it in advance and just let it happen or was actively participating in the attack on America, it reached a not insignificant number of people at the same time as Bush's popularity and the popularity of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan reached their low ebb because of how that administration conducted those wars. So one of the most interesting things to me was that you had a discussion of both Dylan Avery, who did Loose Change, and also another sort of prominent truther named Charlie Veitch. Dylan Avery was already having questions at the time, but Charlie Veitch kind of ended up abandoning his beliefs in a way that really seems to have been experienced by him and also handled by others in the movement as like religious apostasy. Could you talk a little bit about that? I'm just really learning about Dylan Avery's full-blown apostasy, and that is big because he, he made the film that turned into the big piece of, I would call it propaganda, to spread this message and had millions of views and, and spawned Lord knows how many people who started to believe this thing. And he was just sort of starting to express ambivalence to me when we were talking. And he was just feeling like people should be more tactful in how they respond to things and recognizing that there were perhaps flaws in his movie and uh, his approach to evidence and etc. And other conspiracy theory people I talked to described that film as one said that he, they just swallowed too many poison pills to, to describe the filmmaker and to describe other members of the movement. And it's like, well, you know, there's a million poison pills out there and you can justify your own beliefs in smoking guns by criticizing somebody else's as poison pills. There seems to be a lot of that in 9-11 truther circles that's basically like, oh, you're listening to those guys. Those guys don't know what they're talking about. We've got the real dope here. Exactly. And then if you are big enough of an apostate like Charlie Veitch in this brief moment in 2011, right around the 10th anniversary became, then you become, you know, your co-intel pro. You're secretly a, a, a part of the conspiracy that has been sent inside to infiltrate it and take it down from the inside and and your CIA or whatever. And he was a, just an ordinary dude who happened to come to this political movement in a very big way in his life, become a leading voice, I guess, in England around 9-11 conspiracy theories to the extent that he was like interviewed by bigger 9-11 conspiracy theorists in the U.S. And then he was put on a BBC documentary where they examined 9-11 trutherism in that country. And after a few days visiting the sites and talking to the victims um, and the people who lost loved ones in that attack, he just kind of had a break. He described it as a quote unquote, change of mindset. He says it wasn't a matter of technical evidence. It's more of a change of mindset, going from a paranoid mindset to a less paranoid mindset. And that seems really sensible to me, because as we've said about all the aspects of what makes the technical evidence so difficult to deal with, you just have to have a certain worldview, I feel like, to A, be drawn to this, but then B, to turn against it. And what, what happened to him was he got abusive emails, he got people calling him a child abuser, and just like, again, people saying he was an undercover agent and a spy, and this kind of really hurting his personal life in a very profound way. And he was a very sympathetic figure and one of the easier people to talk to, again, I guess, because 
he had had this change in mindset. Yeah, I think you mentioned that Alex Jones wouldn't even say Charlie Weiss's name when you were interviewing him. Yeah, I pulled up the transcript of my interview with Alex Jones, and I remember asking him about Veitch. And he was like, talked about it in these big, broad terms. And I think he said like something like that operation was a total failure, implying that it was this elaborate counterintelligence brouhaha meant to, you know, and that it was like laughably meek or something like that. And it was just a dude going on TV and having a change of heart. And it wasn't like some profound thing for anyone other than the people in this movement. They expand in size and importance the quote-unquote enemies of the movement in order to expand in, in size and importance their own. It's it's basically like Charlie Veitch decided to stop arguing over how many angels were dancing on the head of that pin, and it was like the world exploded. Yeah. Because you, unlike us, are brave enough to have talked about 9-11 truth under your actual name on the internet, I am just curious about what the blowback was from truthers when you published, because I assume it was uh, hilarious. I kind of took the, you know, don't feed the trolls, don't read the comments approach at that point, just for my own mental health. I do remember getting responses from people I had written about. I wrote a piece for architecture.com a couple years later about Richard Gage's group, the architects and engineers for 9-11. Richard Gage held this event in the D.C. headquarters of the American Institute of Architects. And anyone can rent that space, basically. And that's why they rented him that space, because they felt they had to. But he used it to kind of try to give himself this officialdom of the American Institute of Architects, which is obviously this major organization. When I went to that event, I was in a room of people who believed this thing. And it wasn't a huge group of people because at that point it had kind of died down a little bit. He specifically asked who here believes that this was a controlled demolition. And I think I was like the only one in the room that didn't raise my hand. So he like called on me and he noted that I was a reporter from Slate and all these things really tried to develop this ugly sort of mom, mom mentality and asked me to speak to the, the group in this way. I wasn't going to change my opinion or not stand my ground, but it was really gross. And the comments on that article, I paid closer attention to those, and those were grosser to me than my experience with the, the bigger series that you're talking about, just because I feel like they really, they go after you personally, and they go after you as a member of the establishment, quote unquote, or, you know, I'm just a, a journalist. I'm, I'm literally just a guy who writes and reports for a living and that is held up as this thing that tarnishes you as some devil and it's really it's really ugly it's it's quite ugly to answer your question <laughs> so just uh, as as a final question um you know it's it's gotten a lot more marginal but polls still indicate that there is still a significant number of Americans who have their doubts. Um, do you ever see 9-11 trutherism fully going away? The thing is, Alex Jones is one of the biggest organizers around conspiracy theory thinking in the U.S. And as he has moved more towards the mainstream of the Republican Party, even even having Republican congressmen on his show, having the Republican president of the United States on his show, 
the people who are the biggest proponents of conspiracy theories in this country have shied away from elevating their wackier ideas and have moved on to other things that are like uh, Alex Jones now is talking about the the Nunes memo and how that's going to blow everything wide open about the corruption of the deep state. And these are like this is what is coming out of the officialdom now. Like Kennedy conspiracy theories, there will always be a subgenre of hobbyists and obsessives. But the people who actually care about this and have this worldview in a powerful and profound way have moved on to mainstreaming it in a way that is perhaps more dangerous, but focused less on ideas that are less easy to believe. That's a fascinating perspective. Thanks a lot. And thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Fearful Jesuit. This was really fun. Everything we've seen so far is simply truthers throwing shade at the accepted version of the events of 9-11. But of course, no conspiracy can really grow and spread without its own alternate explanation of the facts. The remainder of this episode will be devoted to what exactly the truthers believe did happen on 9-11. Because there are seemingly as many theories as there are believers, we will limit ourselves to a few key examples which start loony and eventually culminate in the craziest book we've ever read. Y'all, we don't make that last point lightly. We read a lot of weird shit for this job. But one of the books we're about to cover is the current record holder for bug-fuckiest, most unsane thing we've ever seen in print. So, you know, look forward to that. To begin, we'll need to taxonomize the two basic conspiracist opinions about what really happened. As Matt Taibbi helpfully notes in his book The Great Derangement, Nico Haupt, the so-called mad genius of the 9-11 truth movement, is credited with inventing the famed movement acronyms LIHOP, let it happen on purpose, and MIHOP, made it happen on purpose. So, clearly, while still seeming wrong, based on all available evidence, the LIHOP version is the more credible. Again, people, credibility here is a sliding scale. This is also the one that's most similar to Willem's opinion. I'm not saying like that Bush knew what was going on, but I do think there are people within the government maybe not put this into motion, but didn't necessarily stop it. However, this less extreme position isn't super well represented in the online conspiracist world. I think there's a pretty clear explanation for that. LIHOP, though not backed up by the facts, is in many ways the gateway drug for trutherdom. Some, like Willem, who are not particularly ardent about this cause, register a few specific questions that lead them to doubt the official explanation and, comfortable with the conclusions they've reached, don't feel the need to research further, either pro or con. These folks don't believe the standard narrative, but they aren't all bent out of shape about it, and they're still fun at parties. On the other hand, if someone starts as a LIHOP and then decides to get more and more engaged in online discussions of trutherdom, that person will increasingly fall for the truther version of research, and it seems almost inevitable that said individual will end up going full MIHOP, if you will. My hoppers, with whom we will be concerned for the remainder of this show, are both the craziest and, by extension, the most fun group of truthers. And while theirs is certainly a minority position among the doubting public, that hasn't stopped it from fragmenting into ever crazier versions, in a process that is the closest analog to catnip in the fearful Jesuit world. It's hard to know where to start with these, but perhaps it might be worth it to check in once again with Mr. Taibbi, who began making contact with truthers because he was convinced that 
The only reason the 9-11 conspiracy theories were surviving on the internet was that the movement's leaders had carefully avoided articulating the theories in full. I really thought that all anyone had to do was put all of the movement's claims together and the resulting summary would be so unbelievably ridiculous that people would actually be ashamed to defend them publicly. Oh, if only that were so. As my Kindle purchases amply demonstrate, my hoppers are only too eager to lay out exactly what they think happened in theory after mutually contradictory theory. Let's start with one put forward by Operation Pearl, the work of a dedicated truther named Alexander Kiewatton Dudney, and which Aronovich noted in his book as an exemplar of the form. Dudney lays out his perfectly reasonable theory in just seven steps. 1. Four commercial passenger jets, American Airlines Flight 11 and 77 and United Airlines Flight 93 and 175, take off, and shortly after the pilots are ordered to land at a designated airport with a military presence. Okay, no evidence whatsoever that last part happened. Please continue. Two. Two previously prepared planes. One, a Boeing 7067, painted up to look like a United Airlines jet and loaded with extra jet fuel, take off and are flown by remote control to intercept the flight paths of AA-11 and UA-175 so as to deceive the air traffic controllers. Wait. Why would they do that? 3. These substituted jets then fly towards Manhattan. The first crashes into the North Tower and, 18 minutes later, the second crashes into the South Tower. Well, ignoring the word substituted, this is basically true. 4. A fighter jet, under remote control, or a cruise missile, crashes into the Pentagon. That definitely didn't happen. Next. 5. Back at the airport, the innocent passengers from three of the Boeings are transferred to the fourth, UA-93. What? 6. This plane takes off, flies towards Washington, and is shot down by a U.S. Air Force jet over Pennsylvania, eliminating the innocent witnesses through the diversion of the passenger planes. So the government powers that be empty the planes, then fly identical-looking planes with extra fuel into the towers, and a separate missile or military jet into the Pentagon only to load all of the same passengers they just saved from crashing into the buildings into the fourth jet, and then they deliberately shoot that one down with a missile, leaving no evidence of a missile hit, and and somehow covering up the hundreds of additional victims in the DNA-based totals they derived from the Flight 93 clash. For what? What possible reason would anyone, including the most sinister plotters, have for complicating this plan in this way? Okay, Dana, bring us home. Seven. Under the cover of darkness later that evening, the other three Boeings are flown by remote control out over the Atlantic, are scuttled, and end up in pieces at the bottom of the ocean. I'm sure that, like us, a lot of you out there are perplexed at the fact that someone would believe something so bizarre and convoluted just for the sake of doubting the official account. Taibi, confronting a similarly absurd theory offered by the truthers he met with, related the following story. I kept trying to explain my point which was that there was no concrete evidence that the government had committed the attacks. Why would the alleged conspirators do what the truthers accuse them of doing? Why fly a plane into the towers and blow them up? Why crash a plane into the middle of Pennsylvania? Why shoot a missile at the Pentagon and say it was a plane? And so on. You're too concentrated on the why, said Les. You have to concentrate on the what. And the what is a controlled demolition and a plane shut down in Pennsylvania. But why would they shoot down that plane in Pennsylvania, I asked. What would that do for them? The answer, as it turns out, is essentially that because Flight 93 had been delayed on the tarmac for 40 minutes, it wouldn't have been credible 
if the conspirators in the government had simply followed the original plan and let the plane hit the White House. According to this theory, the public simply wouldn't have believed that the air defenses would have taken so long to intercept the plane before it reached its target. So maybe they just shut the plane down to cover their mistake. Seriously, think about this. The all-powerful government that controls everything, that in the words of the acronym, made it happen on purpose. In other words, flew drones, fired missiles, detonated bombs, or whatever set of nonsense these people believe. These James Bond supervillains were powerless to make one of the planes that was key to their entire scheme take off on time. Remaking the laws of logic and physics are no problem for these guys, but air traffic control is beyond their powers. Before we leave the more mainstream, if totally crazy, strains of trutherism, let's take at least a moment to appreciate that while the internet has certainly spread this bullshit, it has also done a hell of a job of ridiculing it. Jet fuel can't melt steel beams has become a favorite absurdist image meme, and as for other 9-11 slogans, well, we present the YouTube masterpiece, Bush Did 9-11 Song. Bush did 9-11, and you know that he did. He's a bad, bad man that hates Arabics. He planned the whole thing to join the Iraq war. Dick Cheney makes mad cash as he laughs at the horror. Jet fuel can't melt steel beams. Jet fuel can't melt steel beams. Jet fuel It doesn't melt steel beams That is trolling of the first order. And remember the briefly popular novelty hit Pen Pineapple Apple Pen from a couple of years ago? I have a pen I have an apple, uh, apple pen. I have a pen. I have pineapple, uh, pineapple pen. Apple pen, pineapple pen, uh, pen pineapple apple pen. Well, I have a plane. I have two towers. Uh, Bush did 9-11. I have Nisi. Some drama. Uh, Ten minute videos. I have crippling depression. I have osteoporosis. Uh, and even former President Obama is getting into the spirit. Bush knocked down the Twin Towers. Bush knocked down the Twin Towers. Bush, 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 Bush knocked down the Twin Towers. Wake up, sheeple. Wake up, sheeple. Wake up, sheeple. Wake up, sheeple. Osama bin Laden had nothing to do with 9 11. Jet fuel can't no steel. Team jet fuel can't no steel. Team jet fuel can't no steel. Team Bush knocked down the Twin Towers. Jet fuel can't no steel. Team jet fuel can't no steel. Team jet fuel. And with that, we plunge directly into the real insanity. Once a person gets really far gone in the weeds of my hop and decides to really dedicate him or herself, but let's face it, mostly himself, to one or another of these branching paths, that person's almost inevitably going to end up deciding that the evil force behind it all is one of the classics. The Jews, the Illuminati, the aliens, 
or some combination of all three. So let's see what's behind door number one. Ladies and gentlemen, it's our old pal, anti-Semitism. That's right, Fearful. For many 9-11 troopers, you don't have to look any further than plucky little Israel to find the evil Mossad-backed conspiracy that carried off 9-11 in order to foment worldwide hatred against their greatest foe, Islam. And, of course, they wanted to make money. Lots of money. Oh, conspiracy theorists, don't ever change. Actually, what am I saying? Please do change. You're kind of the worst. Seriously, though, this stuff starts getting nastily jubating very, very quickly. One of the worst offenders in this area is Terence Smart, the author of A Search for Truth, 9-11, and, presumably, a man whose name doesn't make it into too many bar mitzvah guest books. There's a lot of evidence which suggests that Israel, Mossad, and the Jewish Zionist control of the American government and media were behind the planning and carrying out of the atrocities of 9-11. Aw, buddy, I'm sure you think there is. And I'm just positive that you have some clear, irrefutable evidence of the conspiracy you're alleging. What's that? You think TV shows and movies produced in the years before 9-11 were shaped by the dastardly Jews who control entertainment to pre-program all of us to accept the consensus story of their heinous crime when they eventually got around to enacting it? Well, I for one am all ears. What do you got? In a 1997 episode of The Simpsons, Lisa holds up a magazine titled New York, which says 9-11 on the cover. Some people say it's just a coincidence. I say nonsense. Deliberate coincidences like that just don't happen. I love The Simpsons, at least the good seasons, and that New York episode is a classic. How could I have missed this? Oh. Oh, I'd love to see New York. We could all go with the bus company's special super sitter fare. Nine bucks? This one's on me. It's a brochure whose cover says New York and $9. And it features a bus heading toward Manhattan's skyline in which you can see the towers, which are clearly not part of the $9 caption, but I guess kind of look like an 11 if you squint, except way off to the side and like below the 9. To be clear, even if this was absolutely no question a brochure in a cartoon that said 9 and 11, I'd still think this guy was fucking nuts. But it's not even close. I'll link to this thing in the show notes. You have to be completely unhinged to believe this was the result of a master plan by conspiracists. But Mr. Smart is far from finished presenting his evidence. There's also, for example, the fact that Neo's passport in the original Matrix movie expires on September 11th, 2001, and a moment during the countdown to the alien attack in Independence Day when Jeff Goldblum's character notes that 9 minutes and 11 seconds are remaining on the countdown timer. But undoubtedly the finest of these examples is the fact that the tunnel Schwarzenegger crashes into during the famous truck sequence in Terminator 2. Has a sign above it saying caution. 9 feet 11 inches, with the feet and inches in the familiar single quote, double quote notation. That's right. Those truck height caution signs you've been seeing on highway bridges and tunnels since you've been able to read are all part of the conspiracy. Oh, and there were two tunnels, apparently, which definitely represented the Twin Towers. Have I mentioned that this guy is not 
the craziest person we're going to deal with this episode. He also makes a bunch of gross accusations about the Jewish people who own the buildings, a Jewish firm who broke their lease and moved out a month before the attacks, a firm that did building security whose owners were Jewish, etc. And perhaps this is all very convincing to people who are not familiar with life on the East Coast and might think that Jewish people being so involved in so many facets of the businesses surrounding this tragedy would be highly unusual, given that Jewish people represent only 2% or so of the population of the United States. What this ignores, of course, is that Jews make up nearly 20% of the population of New York City, and that Terence Smart is weirdly fixated on that group. Smart and the other Blame Jews truthers are also obsessed with a group of art students who were putting in an installation in the towers leading up to the attacks. The accusation, of course, is that they were actually wiring the place for demolition. The proof? Well, the art collective called themselves Gelatin, which kind of sounds like an explosive. And, you know, they were Jews. Oh, well, I didn't realize we were dealing with that level of airtight evidence. And before we leave the anti-Semitic conspiracy theorizing to finish up with the craziest goddamn thing I've ever read in my entire life, now is the right time for us to address WTC-7, the fourth building that collapsed in Lower Manhattan on 9-11. First, we'll lay out the facts. World Trade Center 7 or WTC-7, was a 47-story building that was part of the World Trade Center complex. Its tenants were a virtual who's who of agencies that would flutter the hearts of a conspiracy theorist, including the offices of the Secret Service, the Central Intelligence Agency, the Department of Defense, the Internal Revenue Service, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and the city's Office of Emergency Management. And we'll take it as stipulated that no plane hit Building 7, and yet at 5.20 p.m., seven-plus hours after the towers collapsed, Building 7 did likewise. Investigators were initially puzzled. Why had this building come down? And why so long after the other buildings? To answer that question, a bunch of professionals at both FEMA and the National Institute for Standards and Technology, or NIST, started getting down to some hardcore science. And, as is often the case, the story evolved as the research progressed. The 2004 FEMA report blamed essentially the entire collapse on fires. The eventual NIST report the final version of which didn't emerge until 2008, paints a surprisingly complex picture of a collapse that started with debris from the North Tower punching holes in ten different floors of WTC-7, starting fires on each. Of course, the fireproofing that was knocked off by jet impacts in the towers was still in place in WTC-7, which means those fires didn't weaken the beams that make up the structure in the same way as happened in the towers. But because the building's fire extinguisher system was knocked out when the towers collapsed damaged the water mains that supplied them, and of course because of the tragic loss of firefighters who could have helped battle the flames, those fires were able to burn throughout the day. Eventually, while the heat didn't weaken the beams, it did cause them to lengthen by a few inches, which was enough to knock beams and columns out of skew, eventually causing floor 13 to fail, triggering the same sort of general collapse that doomed the towers. Now, remember when I said that the painstaking research necessary to deliver conclusive answers like that took seven years? Well, you'll be shocked to know that conspiracy theorists didn't wait insisting instead that WTC was the smoking gun that even the blindest sheeple would have to accept as evidence of a conspiracy. It wasn't hit by a plane. It fell down anyway. Nanothermite explosives for the win. Truthers spent precious little time worrying about the hows of the collapse, assuming they had that all sewed up. This one was definitely, in their minds, a controlled demolition. The question for them was why. Ooh, 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 I know. Jews. Yeah, surprise. It started quickly. 
For example, not only was the man who leased the WTC complex from the Port Authority, Larry Silverstein, Jewish, but in 2002 he made a comment that would inspire endless accusations from the conspiracists. In a documentary about the rebuilding, Silverstein recalled a conversation with a fire chief who felt that the team might not be able to contain the fires in WTC-7. I remember getting a call from the uh, fire department commander telling me that they were not sure they were going to be able to contain the fire. I said, you know, we've had such terrible loss of life. Maybe the smartest thing to do is, is pull it. Uh, and they made that decision to pull, and then we watched the building collapse. The conspiracists insist that this was the ultimate slip-up. He had used pull it, a term referring to controlled demolition. So then, are they right? Of course not. Jesus, do you even listen to this show? First of all, Popular Mechanics demonstrated that pull it is not, in fact, a term used in controlled demolition. Second, there is a perfectly reasonable explanation. Silverstein was referring to pulling the firefighting team, which in context is pretty obvious, really. But conspiracists gotta conspire. So the truthers had to come up with reasons why the conspiracy they imagine was responsible for all of this would have destroyed this additional building, WTC-7, after their larger plan seemed already to have been completed. But don't worry, they found some. Most of the theorizing here seems to concern an American businessman and former government official named Dov Sackheim. He served as the Pentagon comptroller when 9-11 came around. And according to conspiracists, he's goddamned Ernst Stavro Blofeld. Check this out, Compliments of Treachery, Danger from Within, by Minaj Viagen. Given control of $3 trillion on May 4th, 2001, three months later, $2.3 trillion was missing. Dove's accounts books were destroyed by a Russian missile that penetrated the steel-reinforced concrete wall of the Pentagon, and the backup files in Building 7 were destroyed when Larry Silverstein ordered pull. As the demolition charges were planted before 9-11, Larry was complicit in the 9-11. Yes, the original text reads, the 9-11, period. When the investigation of the missing $2.3 trillion began to point to Dove, he took a job on the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency at Booz Allen Hamilton on May 6, 2004, and the investigation ended. Booz Allen and Hamilton was owned by the Carlyle Group, which had ties with the former president, George H.W. Bush, and the Bin Laden family. The preceding is a poorly written pile of horseshit. Mr. Zackheim was indeed the comptroller when the Pentagon was hit. By a fucking terrorist flying an airplane. But the suggestion that he just disappeared roughly 9% of the U.S.'s annual GDP at the time is completely insane. What actually happened is that over the decades before Zackheim's tenure, $2.3 trillion in defense spending hadn't been properly reconciled among the Pentagon's various accounting systems, which is a huge bureaucratic snafu, but not evidence of a dastardly plot. Zackheim was, rather reasonably, tasked with reconciling this incredibly huge pile of discrepancies, and in the wake of the attacks, in spite of all records supposedly having been destroyed, DOD reports by Zackheim's office noted gradual progress. By his resignation in 2004, the $2.3 trillion in unassigned expenses had been reduced to $700 billion, and while the Department of Defense has yet to completely deal with its many accounting issues to this day, there is simply nothing to the story as the conspiracists tell it. Well, that's it for the specifically anti-Semitic theories. What else are we looking at? How about an energy beam weapon? Our old friend Mr. Smart thinks it wasn't explosives that brought down the towers, but rather a directed energy weapon based on Tesla technology, the conspiracist go-to for science fiction weapons of all kinds. 
After all, Smart notes, the Army has publicly announced its pursuit of such weapons, and have recently stated they're getting very close to being able to field them. Of course, such fielding of said weapons would happen in the future, decades after they supposedly deployed them to knock down the towers, in Smart's telling. D don't worry, he's on it. If the possibility of a directed energy beam weapons is just coming into the public sphere now, then the deep state or secret intelligence agencies have had this capability for a long time. Oh, I guess case closed then. The towers were taken down by frickin' lasers. Next. Next up, we have the no-planers. These delusionals believe that, in spite of the fact that thousands of eyewitnesses saw, and in many cases fucking videotaped, the planes hitting the towers that morning, they and everyone else were deceived. In fact, they maintain, what we actually saw were fast-moving holograms concealing the missiles that actually made the holes in the buildings. One of the most prominent of these folks is David Shaler, a former MI5 agent who's apparently notorious in Britain for, among other things, having declared himself to be the Messiah. When interviewed by the New Statesman in 2006, he was asked whether he had gone full no-planer. He responded, Yes, I believe no planes were involved in 9-11. The only explanation is that they were missiles surrounded by holograms made to look like planes, he says. Watch the footage frame by frame and you will see a cigar-shaped missile hitting the World Trade Center. I know it sounds weird, but this is what I believe. Yes, you believe that because your insane devotion to the idea that there simply had to be a hidden conspiracy has caused you to accept any absurdity in the service of that theory. Of course, he's not alone. Here's a real prime example of crazy from this side of the pond calling into a syndicated talk radio show. I don't mean to uh, hurt anyone's feelings out there who have certain ideas, but I, I, I heard you talking with somebody about the TSA and then the topic of airplanes uh, crashing into buildings and so on uh, came up briefly. There were no pl actual planes striking the uh, Twin Towers at all, and that may seem ridiculous as everyone, quote, unquote, saw them. Well, they were, we, 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 we saw them over and over and over right, and right, over. That's and right, and that, and that, and that was uh, uh, the way they wanted to play it, so they made sure that it was seen over and over again. Well, what were those? What were what were those planes that we saw? Uh, well, they were holograms. Yeah. Now, in order to do this, they have to employ something like lasers to create uh, some kind of an interference of beams of some uh, from some kind. I don't of know. I, I don't. I don't understand how it works, but I. I don't. Yeah, I, but, I have but no I got, idea. But, but it is cool, and I have seen them. Uh, but, okay. but 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 holograms don't tear down buildings don't that's right they, they make don't. holes and in fact in fact the buildings weren't torn down what about the what about the the big hole in the side that looked like an airplane well, i'll explain that only that, we've that only got good. less than a minute here so okay well uh, before this happened uh, on a couple of weekends uh, elevator maintenance was re supposedly required and a lot of teams of technicians went up in elevators to supposedly do service on the elevators this gave them access to every floor and they went in between the floors and attached many nukes special nukes and that's how they cut the beams and made it so, so, so. and about that all-powerful government conspiracy 
As Aronovich puts it, no planers have to believe that a cabal that couldn't plant weapons of mass destruction in the vastness of the Iraqi desert could fly hologram-shrouded missiles in plain daylight into one of the most public places in the world. Yep. Super dumb. But there's one other big bowl of stupid to run up the flagpole. Let's just call this one, the passengers were in on it. When you think about it, even including all of the unscientific or ludicrously impossible assertions about the physics and mechanics of the attacks that conspiracists blithely deploy, the single most bizarre claims that they make have to do with the passengers. After all, many of the most popular theories have drone planes with no passengers, or missile-shrouded holograms, or whatever the fuck. But this still leaves the nagging question of what in God's name our nebulous conspiracy did with all of those passengers. Earlier we heard one view, which is that, for reasons that surpass understanding, they dumped out three planes worth of passengers, added them to the headcount of the fourth, then blew that plane up with a missile. So obviously that's compellingly explained. But what do some other nutcases think? Well, another prolific truther, Dean T. Hartwell, is ready and able to answer that question with a huge blast of stupid. In his Planes Without Passengers, the faked hijackings of 9-11, he puts forth his thesis that The passengers were not victims, but rather people who knew something about the plot ahead of time. Boy, do I hope a grieving relative or friend never picks up this piece of shit book and reads that noxious, slanderous accusation. Hartwell's deeply stupid theory hinges on eyewitness accounts of 200 or so passengers who were seen at Cleveland. Airport on the morning of 9-11 following an emergency landing. These are, he alleges, the passengers from the real Flight 93. Loose Change offers a version of this narrative in one of its many edits, though the claim was removed from subsequent cuts. Now what actually happened was that air traffic, in the confusion of the moment, came to believe that Delta Flight 1989 might be hijacked. This flight, which landed safely in Cleveland that morning, took off from the same airport and had the same flight plan as United 175 and American 11, the planes that hit the towers. And amid reports of an unruly passenger, 1989 made an unplanned but safe landing in Cleveland. It had absolutely nothing to do with the tragic crash of United 93 in Shanksville loose change notwithstanding. But early, confused reporting on 1989's emergency landing has allowed truthers like Hartwell to spin elaborate, completely groundless fantasies about not just Flight 93, but all four of the planes involved. The whole story, if that's the right word, is too long, complicated, and absurd to retell here. But how about a quick sample after Hartwell has really built up a head of steam? The 175-89 theory goes like this. The 157 passengers for American 11 and United 175 get on United 175 in Boston and take off from there en route to Cleveland. Along the way, the plotters adjust the plane's squad code to a number coded for a hijacking. The controllers receive a message that the plane is identified as Delta 1989 and mistakenly tell 1989 to make an emergency landing in Cleveland. Two planes could become confused with one another on a computer screen if they come within approximately one kilometer of each other. The plotters could have had United 93 fly close enough to flight 1989 to hide it on the screens. That's high quality raving right there. So why haven't we ever heard a peep from a single goddamned one of the passengers Hartwell asserts were unharmed. Hundreds of people, all staying completely silent. Not one of them moved to reveal the horrific plot they were involved in. Not one succumbing to the urge to tell a grieving loved one that they're still alive. Not one appearance at a child's birthday party. Why? The answer is because they were murdered. But Hartwell's got his own bright ideas, none of which make a lick of sense. First idea. If soldiers are willing to die for what they believe in, why is it surprising that some people who really believed in the 9-11 plotter's mission 
changing the foreign policy of the United States through a fake terrorist attack, would be willing to give up their identities for that. Second, maybe some or all passengers were blackmailed. This is presented with zero evidence, of course. Third, maybe they were in on it but weren't told the whole story until they were too deeply involved to back out. Finally, maybe some of them have already given up their secrets, but haven't been believed because who would find the idea of a 9-11 passenger emerging to tell his or her story credible? Holy fuck are those stupid. Yes, indeedle. But before we leave this bizarre inhuman fabrication for the craziest book we've ever read, it's worth taking a moment to compare Hartwell's fevered assertions with a real conspiracy, that old favorite Watergate. Famously, one of the bombshells that emerged from John Dean's testimony, and later was confirmed by White House tape recordings, was the suggestion to Nixon that keeping the handful of Watergate burglars from talking for two years would cost a million dollars. A million dollars. In 1973 equivalent to $5.6 million in today's money, to keep maybe seven guys quiet for two years. So, roughly, how much would it cost to ensure hundreds of people wouldn't breathe the word of a much bigger conspiracy or ever see anyone they cared about, all while covering up a far more massive crime than Watergate, flawlessly, for the rest of their lives? Uh, more? Probably more. Now, it's almost time for us to present the most amazing theory of 9-11 in this or any other possible universe. But before we present the craziest book we've ever read, we have to award a runner-up. In any other episode, this melange of anti-Semitism and rabid delusion would be the craziest thing walking away. But today, the competition is just too fierce. We humbly present the Kazarian Mafia theory of 9-11, as retold in Israeli-obsessed lunatic Terence Smart's own A Search for the Truth. The Kassarian Mafia, KM, is a worldwide organized crime syndicate that has deeply infiltrated and hijacked the political institutions of the United States of America. The hidden history of the Kassarian Mafia has been wiped clean from the libraries and history books and is not taught in collegiate history classes. Bibi Netanyahu, the operational head of the KM, deployed by the Mossad to set up and institute this attack on America, which was to be blamed on Muslims... Wait, how much of this shit is there? More. Keep reading. The Israeli Mossad front company, Urban Moving Systems, was used to transport the mini-nukes, where they were stored in the Israeli embassy in NYC, and transported to the Twin Towers for detonation on 9-1101. The Rothschild KM planted 25 nukes in major American cities and other major cities in Europe in order to blackmail them. Right after their attack on America... The Rothschild KM told the U.S. administration that they would detonate city buster-sized nukes in some American cities, including D.C., if the administration refused to allow Israel to create their own large police state occupation force inside America. Yeesh. Sounds dire. Thankfully, he's made up a patriotic solution for his completely imaginary Jewish threat. Various deep cover covert operations are now being deployed globally to expose and decapitate the Rothschild KM from their endless elastic money supply. Their days of anti-human power are now limited. The secret, incredibly well-trained U.S. team called the Nuclear Snake Eaters is now hard at work searching all incoming Israeli diplomatic pouches and shipments, driving by and flying over synagogues and Israeli embassies and Mossad safe houses with high-tech gamma-ray and helium-3 neutron detectors and using ultra-high-tech custom-tuned and focused satellites to search for any stored nuclear pits. Wow. 
just... Wow, never has a random series of barely connected ideas so eloquently elucidated the author's racism, personal paranoia, and instability. Bravo. Ugh, I need to take a shower. Not quite yet. (sighs) Okay, it's time. Y'all, we need to talk about S.K. Bain. Who's he? Well, we'll get back to that a little later. But for right now, the only important thing you need to know is that he's the author of the most dangerous book in the world, 9-11 as Mass Ritual. And I'm assuming that's the book? What book are you referring to? You know. Could you say it? Just for me. The craziest book we've ever read. Yep, that's the one. Okay, I know we've talked a good game throughout this episode, and you may well be wondering what it is that makes this book such a perfect avatar of credulous dumbfuckery. Well, listeners, this tome takes everything we've heard from truthers this episode, piles on a ton more crazy of its own, and flies that rocket full of stupid directly into the heart of the sun. This book can't be properly introduced, only quoted. Dana Unicorn, you're up. Unfortunately, the evidence points to a worst-case scenario. The picture that emerges is that of 9-11 as an ultra-powerful mind control and propaganda weapon, a psychological warfare tool of enormous proportions, infused with techno-sorcery and deep-level occult programming. 9-11 was a global mega-ritual, and the painstakingly reconstructed occult script for the event contained herein convincingly shows this. Y'all, that's just from the introduction which is, all things considered, the sanest part of the book. Once Bane gets into a groove, though, we quickly learn that everything we ever thought we knew about 9-11 was wrong. And not just sensible folks like you and me, Bane seems to run roughshod over key truther allegations in telling his story. He has no trouble, for example, naming Mohammed Atta as the pilot of one of the planes that hit the towers, and his whole idea of the attacks basically hinges on the concept that the passengers weren't absent or in on the plot but rather they were an integral part of the huge satanic blood sacrifice. What's most important to Bane is the endless occult significance he can squeeze out of every single element of the people, places, and events of 9-11, logic be damned. We'll let SK himself welcome you in via an interview he gave to a conspiracy-friendly talk show. I originally set out to basically disprove to myself some of the wilder uh, theories that I had run across on the internet concerning 9-11, and after uh, several years of research, I ended up uh, writing what could, I think, correctly be referred to as the mother of all 9-11 conspiracy theories. The premise of the book is that 9-11 was not just uh, an act of staged terror or false flag terror, but was also a uh, mass mind control operation a psychological warfare with a uh, occult ritual component built into it. And so it was multi-leveled, multi-tiered, and was much more than just uh, the the typical sort of uh, uh, theory. To quote his book, The numbers and symbols involved with the 9-11 mega-ritual, as well as the order of services, constitute a grand magical operation, as the reconstructive script will show. Indeed, the completed script could be thought of as a contemporary grimoire or a textbook of magic. That magical was the CK spelling, but you probably guessed that. All of this magic is inspired by and in honor of Alistair Crowley 
apparently. You may recall this guy as the self-proclaimed Great Beast, a famous 20th century occultist, libertine, and consummate self-promoter, labeled by the press of his day as the wickedest man in the world. He's also the inspiration for a pretty rockin' Aussie song. Bain repeatedly, and as we'll see, baselessly, asserts that the whole event was like an ode to Aleister Crowley. How does he come to this conclusion? Well, spoiler alert, it's stupid. Most of the nonsense threads Bain uses to tie 9-11 to Crowley involve numerology, perhaps the silliest of all the silly paranormal belief systems. Fortunately for Bain, Crowley was super into this crap too, and made numerous pronouncements about how certain numbers mean this, or that, or the other thing, and how all of it was really, really important, guys, because reasons. For example, to pick one at random, it turns out that 9 is the most evil number. Obviously. And again randomly, 11, as it turns out, is not only the number Crowley claimed to be his number, whatever the fuck that means, but also it represents the concept of magic itself, so therefore 9-11 is not simply a numerical shorthand for the day or its proceedings but communicating the nature of the event itself, a digital combination whose very meaning is evil magic. But wait a minute, Mr. Bain. 9-11 was a famous number long before September 11th happened. Surely there's nothing sinister about that, though? What? I'm wrong. It's super meaningful and definitely not a coincidence. Other than being an engineered synchronicity, designed to make people do a double-take and scratch their heads before falling back into a media-induced trance, though, what would the purpose be? One might suppose that the intended meaning or message is that 9-11 was a gigantic 9-1-1, an emergency of global proportions, which it was intended to be perceived as. But there's more. The untold number of times that the phrase 9-11 has been spoken or written in the past 17-plus years... Every time it's used, we unknowingly participate in the mega ritual, repeating evil magic over and over. Oh, wow. We're absolutely going to take that under advisement? So the date of the attack, as well as the emergency phone code in the U.S., were both an homage to Crowley. But Bane is far from finished. Please recall that one of the planes turned into a weapon was Flight 11 and the towers themselves could represent an 11 to those who want to believe that, as we saw with that ridiculous Simpsons bullshit earlier. But there's much more that Bane has to say about the towers. In the ritual that his fevered brain has created out of unconnected facts and conjectures, the Twin Towers not only represented the Pillars of Hermes, but also invoked the Freemasons Shaquin and Boas. Beyond what they represented, however, is what the towers became on 9-11, altars. Massive sacrificial altars for sacrifice by fire. We're not going to bother explaining those references. Just assume they're dumb. Or wait for our inevitable Freemasonry episode. The numbers keep on coming. Flight 175, which hit the South Tower, apparently referenced one of Crowley's writings, numerologically dedicating the events to the worship of a particular deity. But who? Could it be... 
there's more. Did you know that, according to Bain, adherents of Crowley's Thelema philosophy would often reduce his most famous phrase, do what thou wilt shalt be the whole of the law, to the key words will and love? But then if you turn those letters into numbers and then add up the value of those numbers for the two words, you get nine and three. Apparently, again, according to Bain, Thelemites would use 93 as a greeting. Wait, so what? Well, silly. That's why the conspirators made sure one of the flights would be number 93. And then there's Flight 77, which hit the Pentagon. Which sits on the 77th meridian west and is 77 feet tall. Well, it's nearly at that longitude, but it's also just about as close to 39 degrees north latitude. Why isn't that special? Anyway, just take it as read that Crowley, at least in Bain's telling, had a hard-on for 77 as well, because it represents goats or something. I can see where this is going. Yep. So I have to read more of the shit. Yep. Many of you will remember that at the moment he was informed of the attacks, President Bush was sitting in front of a class of elementary school students as they read aloud from a book called My Pet Goat. And here's where Bane just lets all that crazy hang out. The teacher pounded out the syllables with a pen on her book and read in unison with the children. The overall effect being not unlike the ritualistic chanting of a religious ceremony. So, there sits Bush, as a satanic high priest in Devil's Paradise, listening to little black children chant out a humorous story about a pet goat, which is actually a thinly veiled simplification of the Luciferian doctrine, while people burn to death in the North Tower, and UA-175 slams into the South Tower in New York City. Crowley's Libra 175, the book of uniting to a particular deity by devotion, outlined precisely what the perpetrators are seeking to accomplish at that exact moment through their sadistic, homicidal, ritualistic acts. Unite themselves with Satan. You might have noticed there that the children's book in question is also apparently a thinly veiled paean to the glory of devil worship. Bain explains that because the goat, and not the story's authoritarian father, saves the day, the goat in the end is the savior. Honest to God, I want to quote extensively from every part of this book, but this episode is already kind of a monster and we need to wrap things up, so just a few more items in the lightning round. Okay, go. Uh, uh, apparently, because WTC7 was the headquarters of Solomon Brothers, it represented the Temple of Solomon in the ritual, because, you know, they kind of sound the same. Oh, okay. Um, also, as you might guess, there's a whole boatload of astrological significance to the attacks, all based on the star Sirius. And a dog named Sirius was the only animal killed in the attacks. Uh, and the debris from the towers was put in a landfill in New Jersey called Fresh Kills, because the people whose remains were still in there were... you know... And the Statue of Liberty is an enormous symbol of the devil whose placement in New York Harbor in 1875 was maybe on purpose because the cultists knew they'd build buildings a hundred years later and then knock them down deliberately 30-something years after that in homage to a nutcase named Crowley who would be born 20 years after the Statue of Liberty went up. But perhaps the most notable thing about this book is that Bain genuinely doesn't seem to care that much about the hows and whats, the things that absolutely obsess other truthers. He doesn't even give a fuck about the who though he manages to throw some shade in the direction of the Skull and Bone Society that both Bush presidents belong to. Instead, Bain seeks to answer why, with a series of assertions so absurd it's genuinely staggering. The pièce de résistance of this conjectural minefield is unquestionably the thread he draws from September 11, 2001, to the same date 11 years before, when George H.W. Bush said this in a speech. Idea. A new world order. 
and initiated the most hilarious freakout among conspiracy types in the history of political oratory. That connection made, at least in his mind, Bain then projects forward with a prediction. He believes that a second countdown began on 9-11, leading up to December 21st, 2012. No, we don't know why it's not exactly 11 years this time, since that seemed to matter so much with the speech to a tax man. Remember when all of the loons you knew on Facebook started preparing for the Mayan end of the world on December 21st, 2012, and how not a goddamned thing happened? Well, it turns out Bain had more egg on his face than most, considering he rushed the first edition of this book into print in mid-2012 so people could read the huge chunk that is designed to explain the massive attack that was going to happen on that date before the shit all went down. Apparently the occult conspiracy was gonna nuke Phoenix, Arizona, which you would think we would all have noticed. Honestly, we could keep talking about this book forever. But in the interest of sanity, both ours and yours, we have to stop ourselves. It's time for our final segment. Ladies and gentlemen, from the four corners of our great land, we present this episode of Profiles in Crazy. For this episode, our Profile in Crazy is going to focus on this guy who wrote this crazy book. What was his name again? S.K. Mm, Bain? Are you referring to the author of The Most Dangerous Book in the World, 9-11 is Mass Ritual? Why are you making me go through this charade? Yes, that's a guy. What? A. Dink. That's exactly the dude we were thinking of. You must be psychic. Anywho, y'all didn't really think we were finished with this shit, did you? So who is this S.K. Bain exactly? Well, according to the spotty information available online, he's the former art director of the conservative magazine The Weekly Standard, though we're thinking current staffers might not want to acknowledge this particular former colleague. I couldn't pick up much else about him, except that he is clearly the truest of true believers in the nonsense he's peddling. So to return to our takedown in progress, in spite of his Mayan calendar slash nuclear Armageddon cock-up of 2012, Bain remains apparently convinced of the super duper truthitude of his, quote, research, unquote. In fact, he's so positive he's got the mysterious occult powers that be quaking in their Satan-worshipping boots, he believes he's on a short list to suffer their wrath. In fact, he wrote a subsequent book where he claims that his brave truth-telling was so dead on that the conspirators attacked him and his family in real life. Or, you know, he has so bent his perceptions towards conspiracy that that's all he can see when things go wrong. One or the other. Wait, that your family suffered because of this. Probably the the most dramatic thing that happened, um, at least from my perspective, was um, it was September 11th, 2013, and that was the first anniversary uh, of the publishing of my book, trying to release my book on September 11th, 2012, and uh, was getting ready to go to bed, and my son had... Um, uh, a major seizure, never experienced anything of that nature, never, he was not predisposed to any type of electric activity. The, the timing of that event and the, the nature of what he was, uh, what he suffered through just um, really floored me. The uh, seizures con continued and uh, there were other things that kind of reinforced my perception that that was payback for the things that I revealed in my first book. In fact, he actually goes further, arguing in his book that the truths he's uncovered are so obvious, there must be more to it. 
Of course, these truths are the purest kind of paranoid nonsense, obviously. But for Bain, these senseless revelations are so real, so tangible, that he has come to believe that the conspirators secretly wanted the truly gifted truth seekers, for example, S.K. Bain, to uncover their plot. We must face the conclusion that the conspirators, in fact, wanted us to eventually discover what they'd done. The legendary conspiracy double bluff. Once this element is introduced, the book loses even the semblance of sense that has prevailed throughout. The feeling that, however insane this supposed plot is, at least it makes sense to Bane. Now the book suggests there may be yet another layer to the deception. Maybe, he even suggests, the infallible geniuses who perfectly executed this blood sacrifice he so bravely uncovered did so without even believing in the occult worldview they were bringing to life. After all we've learned, after reconstructing the occult script and contemplating the incredible time, energy, and effort that the orchestrators of 9-11 put into creating their occult masterpiece, there's yet another potentially devastating blow. The possibility that they do not actually believe what they've invested so much treasure in convincing us they do believe. They may or may not be true believers in their own occult system, and this may be the biggest psyop of all, that we will never know for sure whether they are satanically empowered practitioners of evil or just damn smart hucksters using our own ignorance and fears to help them facilitate their goals and consolidate their power. And with this, ladies and gentlemen, we see the conspiracy theory eat its own tail. A person whose paranoia has gone so deep, he not only sees the proof of a non-existent supernatural conspiracy everywhere he looks, he can't even bring himself to believe that said supernatural conspiracy theory was enacted in good faith. It reminds me somewhat of the late Umberto Eco's anti-conspiracy masterpiece, Foucault's Pendulum. In that book, a group of friends who work at a literary press and who are sick of receiving manuscripts from hopeful conspiracy theorist authors seeking to get their pet fables into print, decide to make up their own conspiracy theory. As they flesh out and deepen their ideas, embracing the Knights Templar, the Holy Grail, world domination, you know, the huge. Not only do they start to believe their own story and reinterpret coincidences as reinforcing evidence, but worse, some other rich, powerful believers come to the conclusion that our heroes have indeed stumbled upon the ultimate conspiracy, and they are willing to torture or kill to ensure they reach the imaginary prize first. This is what happens when the theory has embedded itself so deeply that the theorist can no longer see anything else. In the novel, the same intelligent folks who created a theory come to believe they accidentally imagined the truth. Bain believes in turn that he uncovered a deep satanic conspiracy whose plotters were so cynical they might not even believe in the supernatural tapestry they've woven that only Bain can see. Truly, there's no bottom. It's turtles and bald assertions and numerology all the way down. Well... I'm going to offer a different suggestion. Maybe, just maybe, the official story of 9-11, while incomplete, is fundamentally true. And the people who declared openly that they would like to attack the U.S. did so. And our defenses weren't ready, and the attack catapulted us into a new era of war and security concerns that we weren't really prepared for as a country. And in its aftermath, we did some things right, and we did a lot of things wrong and we're still trying to come to terms with what it has done to us as a people. And maybe the difficult process of trying to understand and heal from this tragedy hasn't been helped by S.K. Baines or any other truther's paranoid strain. This has been The Paranoid Strain. 
Follow us on Twitter at Paranoid Strain. Drop us an electronic mail at theparanoidstrain at gmail.com and visit on the web at theparanoidstrain.com. Special thanks to our interviewee, Jeremy Stahl, a.k.a. Jez. As always, we're grateful for the musical stylings of Daniel Arizona and the Paranoid Strain Orchestra and indebted to the dulcet Northern European interjections of Ms. Dana Unicorn. Final mixing assistance comes from Big Mucho, who also put together our super-duper website, and Willem UFO makes the pretty, pretty, pretty pictures. I'm Fearful Jesuit. Thanks for listening. Next episode, we're going to find out why people all around the globe suddenly decided it's not a globe, so they can't possibly be all around it, and why thinking that is so very, very stupid. Until then, remember, the world is chaotic, but it's not out to get you. Or, at least, not you specifically. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.